Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. My guest today is Carol Hooven, who is an evolutionary biologist who teaches at Harvard University, who has a new book out, which is called T, The Story of Testosterone, The Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us. It's a, it's a gripping read. Uh, it ranges from her work at the beginning of her studies with chimpanzees in Uganda through uh, a real tour of the evolving science around the way in which testosterone uh, androgenizes and alters us. And she's actually been interested in this question of what, what explains behavior, in particular men's behavior, for a very long time now, partly because of her own difficult experience. And that's where, as a high schooler, we actually start with that and how she barely scraped through high school and then made her way through an interesting route to the jungles of Uganda and then the seminar rooms of Harvard. And she talks about how the debates over sex differences have now become really politicized and how, in her view, that's leading to some, some bad science. And you will hear her arguing very strongly that even inconvenient truths are truths nonetheless. As you'll hear that one of my takeaways from, I think, a very strong research showing that testosterone, hormones, biology does matter for our behavior uh, is that it makes culture matter more, not, not less, because culture is the way in which we channel and encourage our natures. And so the nature-nurture dichotomy is even less helpful than it, than, it, than it might appear. And acknowledging that there are natural differences in this case between men and women does not mean that in any way that's destiny. Uh, it just means that we have to think hard about the interaction between culture and, and nature. So as I think because of the nature of the conversation, it gets a little bit personal at times, but I think that that's uh, appropriate enough. And we, we end by talking about the need to, to not pathologize the male desire for sex. Um, we both have sons, so we're able to talk about that too. So it's an interesting blend of a fascinating personal story and I think some really important intellectual work too. So I hope you enjoy it. Carol Hooven, welcome to Dialogues. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. You have a whole book out on tea on testosterone and I want to talk about why, why testosterone is such a big feature of your research why it matters, and then hopefully we can get into what what to do about it, and what is this knowledge about the role of how does it how does it help? I suppose is where we're we're going to end. But I want to start at the beginning, which is where your your journey. Um, you, you brilliantly describe catching urine from chimps peeing out of trees in Uganda. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. talk about how you ended up doing doing that that job, and how and how that led into this area of research. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to go back to high school. Um, of course, I dream about going back to high school constantly and sitting in classes for which I am not prepared um, if there's an exam or something. That I have that dream, as many people do. Um, and that actually happened to me repeatedly. I shouldn't say happened to me. That was my situation in high school. I actually didn't go to a lot of classes. And the reason I'm starting back at high school is because I teach students in college and a lot of them have a lot of anxiety about their how they're doing in my class what if they got a b minus or you know heaven forbid something in the c range which of course rarely happens at harvard um hmm. and uh they're nervous about if they're going to be able to get where they want to go and i always like to just be honest about where i came from i was not at the top of my class in high school by a long shot. In fact, I skipped so many classes that I uh, was allowed to walk in the graduation ceremony, but I did not have a diploma mm. in the uh, folder. 
And I was really kind of a, just had a lot of energy. I was not focused or disciplined, was not interested in school, was not interested in science. I um, didn't have a lot of parental oversight. And that sort of, I think that period in my life, given that I was out at night, sometimes all night, drinking, doing various drugs, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, totally naive about male behavior. And that was a bad situation for me to be in. And nobody ever counseled me about how to conduct myself or what to expect. And, you know, so my book isn't about that specifically, but uh, it is about not expecting the opposite sex to be like you necessarily, that there are differences, they are important, they are impactful. And yes, I've had, so that was the, that's just where I came from sort of intellectually and emotionally. And I didn't kind of connect the dots about my obsession, my later obsession with testosterone. As you know, you read the book, I connected the dots dots at the end, literally when I got to the last writing, the last chapter. And I said in the books, I'm not going to, you know, give it away, but I said, here I am. It's sort of embarrassing that I'm just connecting the dots. I think all scholarship is autobiographical to some extent or, or the other. I think it's just a question of when you realize that and, and what you do with that knowledge. But given the knowledge you now have, what would you advise your younger self? It's obviously an emotional subject for you. Yeah, because I think not really when you're young and vulnerable and you don't understand how the world works you know, obviously you can be really hurt in a lot of different ways. And that's the thing that I think good parenting at that stage would have done for me. And, you know, I, I would never want to convey the idea that, um, women or even, uh, young women are simply victims or that they're ever to blame, you know, for, for what happens to them. Um, in terms of sexual assault and, or just getting into situations that make it more likely that something like that is going to happen. And I was in those situations. So I wish that someone had taught me how to take care of myself and make better choices because I wasn't in a position to change male behavior (laughs) at that time in my life. Maybe I can have some influence now. So it wasn't about fighting for my rights to do what I wanted or changing male behavior and focusing on changing male behavior. At that point, you know, it's really about me making choices that would have protected me and understanding something about male nature that was different from my own. Um, And Mm. yeah, I guess that's what I wish for. And if you would have protected yourself, but one of the things you also say in the book is there are these differences between men and women and how much they become tearful. And you say yourself that you, you, you can become tearful. I didn't, I didn't expect to do that to you within the first five well, minutes. Well, I'm surprised I didn't do it in our talk, you know, talk that we were having before. In the green room. <laughs> but um, thank you for sharing that. That's obviously important. And I think it speaks to one of the themes we're going to get to, which is to find this middle ground between, and I guess this is, you know, your own anthropological work in Uganda and elsewhere helped you with this, but to, to recognize the reality of sex differences and therefore the potential different kinds of threat that are posed without in any way explaining it or saying that it's okay. 
So there's this weird middle ground, because on one hand, you could be outraged that you should even have to think like that. There is a strand of thought now, which is, it is simply outrageous that women have to think about the threat of men, right? That's just, they shouldn't have to, and that's just patriarchy. And, and there's another view, which is, it's all your fault. If you behave that way, you got what was coming to you, right? To put it very crudely. But yeah. there's this middle ground, it seems to me, you're trying to occupy, which is to have an awareness of those differences without in any way forgiving them. Yes. So what I try to do in the book is to explain the relevant facts and the relevant science, and not just to focus on male aggression, but all aspects of sex differences, where they come from, and the positive and negative aspects of some of you know the extremes of male behavior, not just sort of the middle ground where there's a huge amount of overlap between men and women, but some of these extremes, because that's where the urgency really lies in understanding ourselves. So I am a passionate proponent of understanding reality and sharing openly and honestly what we understand and what we've, in my case, what we've discovered through the scientific method and what the best science, the, be the science that's most robust and well replicated, what does that tell us about who we are? Yes, and without shame or judgment of any kind, just purely for understanding that I see that as my job. I can use that information for my own decisions in my own life. And I have, you know, I describe in the book how incredibly empowering I have found that information and understanding the facts about evolution and why we have uh, these different hormones and different hormone levels and how they've shaped our bodies and behavior uh, over our lives. And for me, I, I want, I want to share that with you know as many people as possible because it is empowering and understanding ourselves and the people around us and our cultures and you know how the world works in general yeah you have this lovely point somewhere where you say just be beware of findings that go strongly against your intuitions i would say the same is true the other way around um you know i think in one of the things I very often say to my fellow social scientists is, unless a lot of your findings are making you uncomfortable, then you're probably not doing very good work. Right. You know, you don't, That's you don't, right. You don't, you don't like, it's, it's, inconvenient. it's inconvenient. Yeah, otherwise you're suffering from confirmation bias. Right. So everything I think you've said about that is, is right. But so we've, we've had a, a glimpse into the high school you. We now know yeah. that you're a professor, a highly successful professor at, at Harvard. Just, I'm a, I just, just technically, I'm. I think the title is important, so I don't have a research lab, and I am. My students call me professor, but I'm actually a permanent lecturer. So that's important because there is a status hierarchy, and the tenured professors who are in, in my department happen to be mostly male, um, who have been overall wonderful to me and supported my efforts hugely in making this book happen. For one thing. Um, they are tenure professors with active research labs. I've been focusing on teaching and running the undergraduate concentration and advising um, the undergrads. So my expertise in my area is really from the research that I do um, for my teaching, which all uh, concerns the relationship between hormones and behavior. And you teach that a, a very popular class on, the, on this whole issue of sex differences, which you, you talk about. And it seems like you struggled through high school then alighted on this issue, decided you really wanted to understand anthropology and you wanted, to, you wanted to understand men, I think you say. You were just driven by a desire to understand men and what drives behavior. And so you were battering at the door of a colleague 
Um, this is Robert Rangham. Did I get his first name? Richard right? Rangham. Richard well, there Rangham. was 10, 10 years bet- between college and uh, deciding that I wanted to go to graduate school. And what that was also a period of, I was working you- for a financial software company. I just was really trying to get my footing and in the world and do some growing up and a lot of traveling, a lot of reading and taking a lot of different classes in finally in um, genetics and molecular biology. And I really discovered I had a passion there, but it was really the traveling. And I would say reading like, you know, Richard Dawkins that uh, helped me to focus my intellectual interests. It was just a matter of sort of personally gaining the experience and confidence that I needed to go to graduate school. So yes, I apply, I quit my job and applied to Harvard, uh, to the graduate program to work with Richard Rangham, who had written a book called Demonic Males, in which he uh, tried to understand the evolutionary origins of human aggression, particularly in males, by studying non-human primates, particularly chimpanzees, in at his field site in Uganda. And that's something that really inspired me. I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. Not because I was obsessed with aggression per se, but I thought, if I want to understand human behavior, because at that point, I was just really interested in the evolutionary origins of human behavior. Um, and that, And then I applied, I got rejected, and I had people, you know, in hindsight, it was really because I had just a couple people who believed in me and said, you know, you can do this. Don't give up. Keep at it. And um, when I had first applied and got rejected, I went back up uh, to Harvard and met with as many people as I could. And then Richard Rangham finally, um, after I pestered him enough, offered me a job in Uganda to manage his research site for a year and learn to do some field research, which you really need uh, you need to get some of that experience in order to get into a graduate program like that. So the, I, you know, felt like the luckiest person on earth and I jumped at the opportunity. It so happened that it was an extremely violent time in the mm. region in Western Uganda on the Congolese border. The um, Rwandan genocide, you know, hadn't, w- was relatively recent at this time. This was in the late nineties. Uh, there was just, it was a, a lot of uh, unrest and very serious, bloody violence in the region. Um, so people were concerned about that. But that was sort of the environment that I went into. And then, of course, living in the jungle, basically, and being with the chimps every day, there's a lot of uh, aggression there, too. But, it, of course, it's prim- primarily among the males. And I actually, uh, you know, after eight months spending every day with the chimps, I personally never saw any uh, physical aggression among the females, where I would see it many, many times a day among the males. And that doesn't mean that there aren't females who are extremely aggressive, even murderously so, and that definitely happens in chimps. And that's just an illustration of the fact that there is an overlap in these kinds of behaviors. There's always uh, an overlap between males and females. It's not the case that you know, X behavior is confined to males and Y behavior is confined to females, unless you're talking about lactation or gestation or something, you know, related yeah. to that. Um, but yeah, so I got More, to yeah. personally witness these extreme differences in basically aggression and nurturing, which I was really struck by. And it was at that point that I became obsessed with testosterone because 
of, with evolution and testosterone because those are the forces that, for me, were the most po- had the most potent explanatory power in trying to make sense of um, sex differences in animals and humans. You know, humans are primates. We are apes. We just have this incredibly bizarre culture that can amplify or you know, sort of tamp down some of those uh, differences in really interesting ways. Yeah, so there's a cultural, uh, the interaction between nature and culture is very much more complex in humans and obviously much stronger um, for reasons that you've just identified. But I think this point is worth making this point at the outset so, so that you don't have to keep making it, which is many of the things you're talking about have overlapping distributions. And, That's right. Uh, and people mistake. Just on average, on, on average, av- on yeah, average, just, so just on average. Dear, dear, so just- dear listener, presume that we're saying that, presume the distributions overlap. Um, you know, I, in my own work, I've just been looking at, for example, earnings, right? So we know there's a gender pay gap, but it's also true that 40% of women earn more than the median man. Now, so there's uh-huh. a few, there's, so it's a great you know, it's a great yeah, example of an overlapping right. distribution and, and where so it's the difference of the average versus the median yeah 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 well yeah just okay. well just that both distributions have shifted to the right but there's just like the yeah. the increase in number of women higher up is just is just massive and so if you just look at the gap between the medians you see this yeah. get what you don't notice is all the women going past the male median so it's just right. a, it's like height or anything else as overlapping distribution although yes. interestingly one of the most striking charts in your book is of testosterone where there is no overlap between the distributions at all i mean it's not only is it bimodal but you say something like there's a vast plane wide and complete separation and and that's you know people are really trying to some people are trying to push back against that Um, because there are, you know, it depends on what kind of studies you're looking at, what kind of methods they used. But even if you look at the studies that used less than the most rigorous methods and, you know, and accurate methods to, um, measure testosterone levels, um, even those studies, if there is any overlap, it's absolutely minuscule. And it's usually, there's a good explanation for the cases in which like someone who identifies as a female might have male typical levels of a te- of testosterone. And that may be because she in fact has internal testicles and has XY sex chromosomes. So the studies that use the most rigorous methods and that verify health and sex uh, those are the studies that show wide and complete separation. You know, in, in cases if you have a, a tumor or something, if you're a, a woman that secretes high levels of androgens, then it's possible to be in the male range. Or if a male is taking medication for prostate cancer, then his testosterone levels might be in the female range. So there are cases where there will be overlap. But if you do a study that looks at natural healthy variation, then you're going to see, yes, very wide and complete separation. And there just should be no argument there. And it's too bad that I feel like um, we're kind of wasting time arguing about that point. That's something that should just be acknowledged. Uh, Yes, it seems it it certainly seems convincing to me, uh, at least. And I think obviously, we'll get to this, but the political agendas of various people come into play there. And also, you make the strong point that some people will say that the within male distribution of testosterone doesn't explain say athletic outcomes so right. it's not it's so so that's being overplayed in the difference between men and women in sports for example but you make the point very clearly that 
just because within the male among male competitors it's not it's not the only thing that matters of course it isn't still means yes i don't know if you want to talk about that now or later because if you wanted to talk about it now i would probably go off on some rant well let's see it's just one it's honestly it's i think the whole issue of sports in particular is just one of those things that's just a microscopic percentage of people of course it's an issue but then it gets blown out of all proportion in the culture wars essentially it's just one of those things where it's just you feel like a bit of common sense and trust would just you know, deal with most of this but it's become you know it's a, become a fetish i think kind of on both sides so let's not go there now let's see how we do let's okay. let's go back let's, let's so your basic argument is i'm going to quote directly from the book here that testosterone plays a central role in human sex differences and not just in physical traits so hard to get people to disagree with the physical traits bit and pretty convincing. Although there are that, some who do. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's not even go to them. Let's just deal with the people who's with the people. And you do actually engage directly with a number of the people on the other side of this um, debate, which is, you're, so you're making a strong, convincing argument to moment that tes- testosterone matters to our psychology, etc. And I think the first thing to do is just deal, I think you, you do directly deal with the problems here just politically small p you know it's you describe it as a morally suspect view to suggest there could be biological bases for sex uh, differences um i remember when the financial crash happened people said well that was just testosterone etc yeah Uh, just reading frank fukuyama's article on like what if the world was run by women you've been accused of neurosexism um and i just i'd love you to explain a little bit about why you think that is right so you're but you're good faith critics you know, the sensible ones. You know, what, what do you think is the basis for, for this discomfort with your position? Let's give them the best possible argument, rather, because there's a lot, a lot of people on the okay, other side. Okay, this is very, very good practice. So uh, the best possible argument. I think the best place to start is that what I share with my critics is a deep concern for reducing human suffering. And we share the goals of wanting to overall reduce suffering, reduce physical violence, reduce sexual violence, increase uh, gender or sex equality opportunities for women in particular, uh, you know, to have a safer and more just world that also includes equal rights for people with all kinds of differences, particularly of gender expression. That's incredibly important to me. I'm very, very passionate about that. And part of the reason is because in teaching this material, I have formed relationships with many students over the years and pretty strong intimate, not intimate physically, but kind of intimate emotionally uh, relationships with students who are suffering because they are different in those ways. And they take my class because they want to understand uh, more about what's going on in their bodies and brains. So I am very passionate about supporting people who are different and and trying to ensure that they have uh, the rights that they deserve, equal rights. So we we share the same goals. Where we differ is how to achieve those goals. Uh, So my broad view, again, is that social progress depends on scientific progress. And I just fail to see how obscuring scientific facts or consistently downplaying biological explanations in favor of cultural explanations for behavior, I fail to see how that promotes the agendas that I have just 
described. If the idea is to argue that men and women aren't really that different biologically, and if they're not that different biologically, and even if sex itself is is um, not so dependent on biology, but is more dependent on identity, then that means that it's about culture or about our psychology. And that means that somehow magically, everybody should have equal rights. So getting from that, that argument to that will promote equal rights more effectively than the truth, which I see as, of course, there's just an interaction of genes and environment that produces all behavior, and we should do everything we can to understand exactly how that works. Um, I think the fear is that biological explanations for behavior or for, say, the patriarchy, I think the perception is that, well, if testosterone promotes status-seeking behavior and competitive behavior and aggression, then that means somehow that it validates those behavior. A, that it validates those behaviors socially, that people mm-hmm. will think they're entitled to those behaviors, that they're justified because they're natural, which is just plain incorrect. Yeah, it's the, it's and if you pink, understand the, the science, the you can understand fallacy. why. Yes, you, but you have to learn the science and to understand why that conclusion is incorrect. And the second fear is that we think that not only might that those kinds of explanations validate undesirable behaviors or the status quo that we want to change, but uh, by a lot, people perceive bio, biology as being immutable or the consequence, anything that is genetic means we're just stuck with it and there's nothing you can do about it. But that is just silly because we know that um, just take, okay, take little kids, take a five-year-old. Some people will raise their five-year-old so that it's permissible for them to uh, run screaming around a restaurant, right? So we know that the predisposition of the five-year-old to do that is higher than it is in you and me because we're adults, right? And that has, to, that has biological underpinnings. That, that has developmental biological underpinnings that have to do with the um, development of the brain, right? Yeah. But those, peop- those, the people rules- should, those people should not be allowed to have children, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> I agree. Um, but the point is that that has to do with genes and biology. That little kids, the, the threshold for them to express that behavior is much lower, right? They're much more inclined to do that. However, the rules in the restaurant, the standards of the parents, the values of the local culture, the country that they live in, the religion that they are, what they had for breakfast, um, all of those things are going to have a massive impact on whether the kid runs and screams in the restaurant, right? Yeah. So the everybody can see with their own two eyes that, okay, like in Singapore the rates of, of male physical aggression are extremely low, say, and in uh, especially sexual assault. In, in India, rates are much, much higher. But everywhere, males have a higher predisposition for physical aggression and sexual assault, by far. I mean, that's just a completely consistent pattern, and it's consistent with non-human animals. And we know that testosterone has that influence. But we see that culture can have a massive impact on the expression of that behavior and the modulation of, it's not the human nature that's the problem, it's the behavior and its consequences 
that we need to be paying attention to. Of course, we want to understand human nature so that we can best learn how to modify the way that it expresses itself in a given environment. And I just can't state that strongly enough. So if we Mm -hmm. constantly downplay and say, no, no, it's we're all the same. It's all culture. Culture is entirely to blame. Then we might think, oh, we fixed the problem now because we've we're addressing culture and that's all we need to do. Yeah. Well, no. And I sorry, I'm just going to say one more thing. So I I say in I talk in the book about my depression or type two diabetes what I do, what I eat, how much I exercise has a huge effect on whether I feel those symptoms. I know it's genetic. I have it on one side of my family. I can't ever let up. I can't ever assume I've made the changes I need to make. Now I'm fine. I have done that before and it was a disaster. I have thought I'm cured and I, and I didn't, um, you have the same thing? Well, I, I, is that bit really or something spoke, similar? Spoke to me, yes, because similarly, vulnerability to depression, and I let you, you know, I learned the hard way too that that there are things I can do in the way that I conduct myself in my life to help kind of contain that. And when I don't do when I don't do those things, then I get into trouble again. And so it's yeah. a great example of how the knowledge of nature can influence, yes. you know, in this case, it's a microculture. It's you know, fortunate within my family circumstances. So, but also like you like exercise and so on. It's like, like I remember once I was actually running, running out somewhere in the Southern U S States and this, and this, this guy went past me in a truck and I'm running along already. He's like, son, what are you running from? And I said, my depression. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and then he drove no, same, but, same. But it's, So I think it's a great example. But it's interesting because what that means, of course, is that people like you who take natural differences seriously actually are therefore take culture in some ways even more seriously because the yes. role of culture in responding to, channeling, modifying, tempering, encouraging certain aspects of nature is even more important. If you think that there are yes. these natural differences, it doesn't, it doesn't make culture unimportant paradoxically it makes it even more important because that is such an interesting insight and and i think you're right i think you're right and i think it's a nuanced point that takes a little work to really appreciate but i think you're right and it's lost by the nature kind of nurture thing and and this point about difference too i love your point about difference because there's one view which is to get to equality you have to sandblast away all differences right we're all basically the same tabula rasa because otherwise you know, different from what? What does it mean to be different? And it means different in some way to quote the norm. Who's to say what's normal? It comes back to this point about a distribution. It's always struck me that you can imagine something along a spectrum like maybe you know, gender and say, yeah, there's a spectrum. There are people in the middle, right? There are not people at kind of the end, but most people are clustered towards the end. So right? when you say gender, what, what do you mean? I mean, I, I mean, in terms of like male, female. So you've got these bimodal distributions around testosterone, but you do have people who are intersex, which you talk about, for example. You talk about some people who are trans and so on. So in other words, it gets messy. In the, let's say it can get a little bit messy in the middle, but that doesn't mean that most people aren't clustered by and large towards one end of it. But are you talking about gender expression? Because sex, of course, is binary. Um, I know that's like not fashionable to say right now. Well, no, you said, you, uh, but there you are, say there that. are males and there are females and you know, there are sperm and there are eggs. There's no intermediate gametes. And, um, there are people who have conditions where their hormone levels or their genitalia 
or their chromosomes even, um, yes. might not match their gamete design plan, which is really what defines sex. But obviously that doesn't mean that sex is on a spectrum. So I just want to, sure. I think that you're on the same page with me and you were just talking about something a little bit No, you're probably, I wasn't being, I wasn't being or, clear enough. But there's okay. one exa- a good example of this actually, which sharpens the point is, and I can't remember the name of the group now, but they're the ones who, I think they're in South America somewhere, who grow up as girls, but then become boys and adolescents. Five alpha reductase deficiency syndrome. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what that is and what that tells us about how hormones affect our development and why and how they're still binary, right? They're still one or because they, they, they're born as one, but then become another. Yeah. So uh, um, I will talk about the, I'm going to call it, um, so it, they're, the acronym is DSD. And it used to stand for disorder of sexual development. And now uh, people are say, uh, difference of sexual development, which I like. I like to reserve disorder for when there's a you know, health problem that needs to be addressed. So these are interesting cases, and they usually... Um, so, uh, sorry, I'm just going to start in utero and just explain briefly that in order uh, for typical male development to take place in utero, to develop the... When I say internal and external genitalia, what I mean basically is, uh, say, penis and a scrotum, and then the associated internal, say, plumbing, like the vas deferens, which is the uh, equivalent, basically, of the fallopian tubes and other, other related uh, structures. In order for those things to develop in the male, there has to be, first of all, testes present uh, in general. Um, that produce male typical levels of testosterone, which are very, very high. Female fetuses are exposed to almost no testosterone, very, very low levels typically. Um, So testosterone can work as testosterone to do its job, but when it masculinizes something called the genital tubercle, which looks more like, uh, it begins looking more like a clitoris, but... um, it's actually the action of a derivative of testosterone called DHT that causes that to develop ultimately in the pe- uh, mm. develop into a penis. Um, and if there is no, even if there's testosterone, if there's no DHT action, then the tubercle will stay small. And a vagina, something that looks like a vagina that does not connect to a uterus, will um, develop. And so this person would be born with genitalia that look female. So these people will be, uh, if they're born in a place without um, sort of modern medical care, they would be likely to uh, be sexed and raised as females. You know, it's exceedingly rare, although it does occur. And they might be um, raised as girls. However, what's interesting is that in utero, testosterone acts, and I'm just going to use the word testosterone to mean testosterone or DHT. Um, It acts on the androgen receptor. It has to interact with the androgen receptor to masculinize the reproductive structures. But at the same uh, during gestation, it also acts to masculinize the development of the brain in ways that promote male reproductive behavior, like higher rates of rough and tumble play and physical aggression and status, you know, attention to signals of status and ultimately um, higher libido and, you know, those associated kinds of uh, characteristics. 
So what you see in these, they're actually little boys. They're, they're male, right? These people with uh, 5-alpha reductase deficiency. So, but they, in, in the cultures that we find them, the, a lot of time these cultures are, uh, have strict gender norms for each sex. So girls are supposed to, you know, wear dresses and stay home and help their mothers. And boys are given much more latitude to, you know, go outside and play. Yes, much more traditional. And so it's just a great opportunity to evaluate the role of testosterone in shaping Uh, I'm just going to say gendered behavior, because typically these individuals, even if they are raised as girls, show much more male typical behavior than a typical girl. Their behavior is masculinized. They're much more likely to act like a typical boy. Culturally, they may not be allowed to, but they certainly, um, when they hit puberty, many of them end up transitioning um, to live as a man. And it apparently is not just because at that stage they do go through a fairly typical male puberty and they get um, increased body size, increased muscle mass, lower body fat, and they start growing a a penis, albeit a smaller than normal penis, and their testicles might descend at that point. They may or may not descend. Um, But a lot of them report and their families report that these, as kids, they were not typical girls they had much were much more likely to uh show higher rates of like rough and tumble Mm. play you know wanting to play physically with uh other kids and wanting to play with the boys instead of the girls um sorry that was a super long answer i think it covered a lot of ground because you talked about the effect of androgens as well and i learned from your book that androgen in its original uh greek terminology means making making men and man generating yeah Yeah. you get a default female embryo but then we become male but it also i think that's the reason that's such a good example is because nobody knew and so it was genuinely a sort of people were blind to the fact that this syndrome, yes. you know, this difference was going to appear. And so it's a, it's a, just a good, it's just a good test case of the extent to which if you're treated one way, it makes you that way, as opposed to how your, your body's telling you yes. know, the difference between the signals from inside and the signals from outside, if you like. And that was a, that's a good real, it's a, it's a real world example. And you draw on lots of others, yes. like, you know, people who've transitioned, people have other kinds of differences, etc. People who, I mean, the trans, you make great use i think of people who have transitioned and taken huge testosterone shots as well i know you spoke to andrew sullivan about this as well in fact you quote andrew uh, at some length about yes. the differences between gay gay men and lesbian women particularly around around sex drive sexual yeah yeah so well sexual all... culture sexual behavior yeah yeah there's this great i think i got this from um melvin connor's book women after all where he talks about driven sexuality i think that's a, a, a really nice way to describe it is that there's a sort of dr- drivenness about it a sort of intentional yes. uh, it's on your mind a lot you feel different sort of goal oriented yeah it's like it's you know you've... object and potentially object oriented and goal oriented in a way it isn't typically for women exactly that's the end i mean there's this great i think this is i think it's in friends i can't remember which comedy series it's in but where one of the guys says to test to the women it's just so complicated like there's you know there's all, many, all these things you want and and it's difficult to know what you really want and the woman says to him so well it's better than just having like one thing that you want all you guys ever want is one thing and he says well at least we have the decency to let you know what it is uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of and there is a sort of clarity uh, around that um and I want to talk a bit about that, but before, before yeah. just, just just give me your 
your quick take on where you place the most weight in terms of the evidence for the importance of testosterone from all the sources you draw on because you draw on lots of different animals you know you read you watch the red deer in scotland we have songbirds obviously rats that we can put things in and out of and so on we've also got the evidence from people with a difference in something like the case we just talked about we've also got people who are transitioning we can also make we can take blood samples of men in different circumstances and test it there's obviously so there's different kinds of evidence that all point i think to the same direction which which of those kinds of evidence do you find most compelling in the end like if you could select one evidence base where, where do you think you'd go well can you that's such a hard question can you give me a particular aspect of behavior that i can kind of focus on because it is for me really understanding the confluence mm. of the evidence like where yeah, does that that's a good all, question that, that's uh, fair well let's take point. aggression let's take uh, let's say a greater propensity to aggression among men if you're looking to show that that's true as a result of nature and particular testosterone where's your yeah. first go-to yeah it is looking at using a comparative perspective to look at the reproductive strategies that are um that each sex tends to use and across you know you could look at even if you, if you you look at mammals you can look at other taxa because it's it's common you know i talk about birds i talk about lizards like you said i talk mm. about um it's like a zoo mammals <laughs> but what the the common theme is that in most cases males can relative to females increase their uh fitness, their reproductive success by competing with other males for mating opportunities. And males, it's very unusual for males to invest in their offspring as we see in humans. And that's the case in only about 5% of mammals. So we have to take that into consideration as a part, a really important part of um, human behavior and culture that, that plays a big role. But so that our sex differences and aggression aren't as large as we see in other species. And our males are nowhere near as uh, physically aggressive as they are in many other species. So for me, it's that evolutionary comparative perspective and the knowledge in all of these other species about how testosterone tends to increase aggression and in, in males specifically. It's not that, it, that females aren't aggressive in reproductive context, but it tends to be in regards to their offspring that they would be physically aggressive in protecting their offspring or their own lives because that's what benefits them reproductively. Males tend to benefit reproductively by competing with other males for status, for resources uh, that or you know that they could use to attain additional mates. So that's you know what I see as the parsimonious explanation, uh, the explanation that sort of unites the evidence in the clearest and simplest way. Um, and depending on the trait, you know, it may be helpful. I think it's also then, of course, crucial to look at the evidence in humans, and we can't do the kinds of experiments we do in non-human animals. So that's where we look at this natural variation in hormone levels and how it uh, is related to masculinization of behavior. And I find that very powerful too. But I would say... My dominant perspective is really that evolutionary comparative perspective. Yes, and that gives you the framework within which to argue about it. I mean, Margaret Mead famously said that we shouldn't let women fight because women, own, women fight to protect their young. And when they do so, they'll fight to the death. So you don't want to trigger that kind of aggression. Her, her view was that male aggression was more containable than female, easier to trigger 
but but would but easier also to recede whereas female aggression mm-hmm. was was provoked by a desire to protect their young and that was such a strong evolutionary so she's don't let she yeah. said don't let women on the battlefield so it was a an interesting sort of okay. interesting kind of way around to talk uh, to talk about it um this issue of aggression um is obviously a strong a strong theme and i just i want to say what i think you're arguing and what I've read elsewhere and see if this is right. So you've made the point that men, men are more, men explain like 95% of the murders. You know, there is cl- clear difference. You have to be crazy not to see that. But also a huge drop over the last century or so, massive decrease and significant variation, as you just said, between places. So it tells us that culture is a huge factor. And I think, so it's, it's the propensity for aggression, but there's also self-control their cultural norms there's there's a complex set of things that go into our behavior and my sense coming away from this was that men can be more aggressive but they're not necessarily more aggressive on a day-to-day basis and so if a threat appears or something is that is that a fair summary of it that 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 there's a we and and t and our testosterone spikes in those situations so but there isn't there isn't a sort of day-to-day level so i'm not necessarily more aggressive than my wife every day right but if someone ran up oh i'm definitely more aggressive than my husband every day well you said the yeah so but it's but the i think it's important to um ensure that we're talking about physical aggression because we know that females Mm -hmm. can be extremely aggressive but it tends to be in a way that doesn't put themselves at physical harm. And we see females really hurting other females, especially among young women and social media. And, and that there can be some very, very aggressive, cruel, competitive behavior. So what we're talking about is mostly physical uh, aggression and, and a certain type of status competition with a, a certain style that we don't see in women who are also status conscious and compete for status, but tend to do it in less direct confrontational ways so just to throw that out there yeah i think that's right let's let's talk a bit more about sex drive and this driven sexuality point you actually mentioned the jeffrey tubin famous jeffrey tubin zoom well i call. threw that in at the last minute because i was finishing up the book when well, people i mean um, f- uh, sad for him but a, but a gift to many non i know i shouldn't to, laugh to many non it is sad writers. for no, him it's amazing, but yeah. funny but but what's interesting is that we're talking about that the re- the difference between my male friends and my female friends in that. So the um, the reaction from women was, I can't believe he would do that. You know, during a working day, he'd be masturbating during the day. And the reaction from the men was, I can't believe he didn't figure out how to turn his camera off. Oh, uh, right. No, that was my reaction. Was what an idiot. Why didn't he turn his camera? Of course right. he's going to do that during the day. Yeah, well, you study this for a living. But I think for a lot of women, there's just this idea that on a sort of 15-minute break on a zoom call that that would be an, a great opportunity to masturbate. That wasn't just a, that, that wasn't an, right. a lot of women didn't see that as just an obvious thing. Whereas men were like, right. Well, women don't even understand that their husbands are probably watching porn. You know, they just think it's not their husband. Yeah, it is. Sorry. Yeah. Well, if he has an internet connection, you know, <laughs> right. so I said, like any man who says he hasn't struggled with internet porn addiction, either is either a liar or has a terrible internet connection, but there is this sort of, <laughs> so what, where, do, and, and there's great evidence again from the female, in terms of this difference and I think again anyone with any common sense and you know human culture is based around this difference what does that mean do you think in terms of how we should think about our relationships how we think about culture 
for example, I had Joe, your colleague Joe Henrik on and talking about how marriage, but I think more specific, I think fathering lowers testosterone. But, yes, but right? yeah. Yeah. And so at monogamous marriage, right? Not so much in polygamous because you're still in the game and going out and getting more. And so what, what should our knowledge about the greater driven sexuality of boys and men do in terms of how we think about education, how we think about family, how we think yeah. about marriage? You know, is it a problem? How do we, how, yeah. do, how, do, you know, how does this knowledge help me? I've got three, three sons. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a man. How does it help us? To how, old, how old are your sons? They're grown. They're uh, early 20s oh. and late teens. So we've been through puberty okay. with them. But, um, okay. So I want, you brought up so much and I want to make sure, I know, I don't know how much more time we have, but I want to make sure that we get to a couple of points, a, a few different points that you raised. One is the monogamy and um, having kids thing. I want to make sure we talk about that. But before that, you talked about just how does this affect our relationships? And through writing this book and talking to a lot of different people, especially men and having very open conversations with my husband and the um, transgender people I interviewed who changed their testosterone levels and experienced the changes that you would expect from going to female levels to male levels of testosterone and the effects that that had on their sexual nature, their sexual desires, sex drive, uh, and then going in the opposite direction, you know, had the exact opposite effect, uh, reducing the sort of urgency of the sexual need. Um, but one thing that has been really interesting for me is to conceive as a woman of the, try, try to understand the struggles that men face and, um, feel, I think, ashamed about, Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes rightly so, because when they, um, perceive women sometimes or whatever the sex is that they're attracted to because this also happens in um among gay men where there's a view of the object of your sexual desire as somewhat of an object right so this is more of a male of a masculine you know male tendency than it is among females and so females are on the receiving end of that and hate it a lot of the time, they feel objectified, right? Mm-hmm. And rightly so, because they are, in fact, being objectified to some extent. And that is, I want to understand that because I don't think that urge is something to be shamed or judged. I think it's the actions that we need to evaluate and respond to. But we're never going to be able to help men navigate that tension that many good guys feel. I feel very passionate about this. I'm getting emotional again. Um, Between their urges, which are different from ours on average, and they feel like, oh my God, I really am so sort of urgently attracted to this person. I want her body in a way, and I have this strong pull. I don't know how to talk to her. I don't even know how to consider her as a full human being and interact with her. So there's teaching that needs to be done. And there is... It is not happening because there's so much shame. And I'm not saying that that's not understandable because it is hard to be on the receiving end of that. Women want to be taken seriously for who they are and they want to be treated as a whole human being. But I do now see that, oh my God, there is something that men are going through that women have do not understand, have no sympathy or compassion for, 
which again, understandable, but it doesn't mean that the people who feel this are bad. It's not bad. It's real. It's natural. It's something we have to understand and work with. And if we shut down the discussion, if we shut down the science, if we shame everybody for their natures, we are never going to make progress in helping men navigate what it is they want and how they get it and how they treat women. Gay men have sort of worked this out to some extent because they agree, they have uh, a shared understanding of what they want. They don't necessarily feel, you know, in some circumstances they might, but it, they don't take that desire as an insult. And women do because yeah. they don't feel it back and they don't get it and, and they're angry. So it and I get that. So it bring, I'm, gl- I'm very glad you said all of that. And I think that, you know, I just will take that clip and send it to everybody that's raising sons uh, in 21st century yes. because I strongly agree with you. The difference, of course, is that when it's ma- male desire for women, it brings in the gender imbalance, gender equality, you know, feminism question. But, but I, like you, I, and having raised, you know, three boys and being a boy and being a man, um, I think it's incredibly important that we don't toxify male desire, including for women, because otherwise what I sort of see happening is that same-sex desire is applauded because, great, you can be who you want to be. So, you know, our gay friends are like, great, have at it, fantastic. Similarly with women, you know, if you want to be great, terrific. Um... And actually, desire of women for men is celebrated too, right? So it's like if a woman wants to, you know, be sexy and she wants to attract men and she's intimate, great. So it's like, and she's l- allowed to objectify men because they will accept. I mean, they might tend to accept it in a they way they won't that women take don't. it. Yeah, and it's back to. I mean, it's uh, unfortunately all my references seem to be dated sitcoms, but I'm sure it was Seinfeld who said women need a reason. <laughs> women, women need a reason to have sex. Men just need a place. Right. But some real truth, and actually. We don't want to end up with a situation where strong desire for a woman, strong sexual desire for a woman, is bad. What the question? Right, that it's not only good; it's 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 natural. In fact, many many doctors use it as a sign of health that you get an erection in the morning, for example. Right, and and actually, there's good evolutionary reasons why men do need to be ready to go, pretty because you don't know how much opportunity you're going to get. Right, so. So it makes perfect evolutionary sense, and I'm not going to make, and I didn't make my sons feel bad about that. The question is, what do you then do about it? And you're right. You don't, what you don't, you don't shame it. You structure it. I had this great qu- quote from you educate. The, yeah, you educate and you structure. Learn, and you learn about that. Porn. What you're feeling isn't the same as what the woman is feeling. Don't expect it to be the same. That's you know We're where a lot same, of which is why you develop these That's ri- right. these rituals That's and right. courtship and so on, which is to sort of somehow these very elaborate social structures, which actually somehow magically make it work, despite these differences that the headmaster of Stowe School, a big private school in the UK, said, was asked what he was trying to do. This is a boys' school. And he said, I'm trying to produce men who will be acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. Yeah. Oh, I, my just gosh. pretty good, I yeah. think, because you've That's got beautiful. acceptable yeah. at a dance, which is, look, I, you know, I know how to behave. I know how to, you know, I know how to contain myself. I know how to restrain. I know how to communicate desire without that being creepy, etc. And it's okay to be desire. It's okay to pursue as long as it's within certain. But at the same time, the ship's going down. You know, I'm you're going to need me to get the life rafts off and so on. And I think I keep coming back to that phrase. I might even use it in my own work. I was like, you know, that was from the 19th century, whatever that was. It's like, that's pretty good, actually, acceptable at a yeah. dance. And, and I do think there's a problem with this toxification. In fact, there's some Pew research I was looking at recently, which really stopped me in my tracks, which shows that masculine 
as a trait is now considered by most people not only to be negative applied to women, but negative as applied to men. So yeah. to be masculine. So I guess that leads me to the next question, which is an inevitable consequence of your view, which I think is we are different. There is no inequality inherent in that. We can be equal as well as different. What are the good things about testosterone uh, fueled behavior? What is it that, that the masculinization that results from, from testosterone? You know, what are the things that we really, we don't, we, some things we want to temper, but there, there must be some good stuff here, right? That we get from testosterone and in our men, good aspects of masculinity. I think so. What are uh, they? And it's, it's hard sometimes to separate the good from the bad. So I have, um, I wrote an article for a magazine in the UK about my husband, Alex, who's um, British and not very emotionally expressive and extremely stable and kind of a, I would say, has somewhat of a dominant personality in ways, but he, you know, he doesn't get angry. He's always, he always supports me and you can already see I'm extremely emotional. Um, and I do think that his demeanor has something to do with his testosterone. Um, the Brits are, in fact, less emotionally expressive than yes, everybody else. But true. the men tend to be less emotionally expressive than women. They tend to cry less than women. I'm, I'm tearing up constantly, and he hardly ever does. But I, I wrote about my initially feeling frustrated with his what I perceived as his inability to access his emotions. And where is his rich inner emotional life? And why can't he get in touch with it? And I think I caused, um, I bugged him about it and I made him feel bad about that. Uh, and again, through writing the book, I think I just came to appreciate that's just who he is and he's, he's awesome. And I know that that is a big reason I was attracted to him because I have so much, I'm so kind of emotional and I have such highs and such lows and He's just my rock. Mm. So I think that in a sense illustrates both the kind of positive and in some ways negative because we can't connect in exactly the way I, the woman, the expressive one, want to connect. But we have this thing where if I just appreciate it for what it is, and when I started doing that, things just got a lot better because I think he felt more accepted and free to be who he is. So there is something about that masculine, for me, that masculine, I think many women respond to the, respond to it the same way. I think um, masculine kind of um, stoicism mm -hmm. that enables them to be strong in certain kinds of crises. Where, sorry, I'm going to get nailed for talking this way because I think this sounds like some sort of anti-feminist view, but it's not. Of course, I'm also very strong in a crisis, overlapping, in a very overlapping distribution, different way. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, yeah. but we have different styles, and they're complementary and. But it just so happens that, like, I'm probably more of a physical risk taker than he is. Mm. But, you know, that's unusual in that um, men are more likely to take physical risks to protect others. And that's just a fact. So that's something that I also see as, you know, that's common all over the world, the, that physical heroism. Yeah. Um, not when it comes to, to the children. Women will also, uh, at a, you know, risk their lives for their kids. But when it comes to people they don't know, for instance, that's much more likely to be men. And I do think that has something to do with testosterone. And um, I have to say, at the, so at the end of my class, I always, um, I try to have an open discussion and I ask, uh, or at the end of, I think the unit where we talk about testosterone and male behavior, what 
would the world be like, you know, if we castrated men or something like that? Or what would happen if we didn't have testosterone? And I, a couple years ago, one kid spoke up and he said, I don't think we'd have tall buildings. I don't think we'd have cities. You know, and that's extreme, of course. But then he then went on to describe that he thought it's something about um, a um, that competitive, that intensely competitive nature, that that single-minded uh, focus on goals to build things and create and invent that is more tends to be more typical of men than women who, yes, are having you know doing more parenting and nurturing, mm. right? So he was arguing that. A lot of aspects of our civilization are probably due to some of those characteristics. I'm not necessarily, you know, endorsing that because, again, there's tons of overlap. And who knows what the world would be like if there were no testosterone. Yeah. But I just thought that was an interesting way to think about it. Well, it's it's also interesting. You you point to the fact that you get diff- these overlapping distributions, but then at the tails, you'll very often see overrepresentation. Yeah. So I didn't even know until I read your book about the Carnegie Hero medals for example that are awarded no i didn't know either until i did the research physical bravery and they are extraordinary stories one guy this year actually he he died trying to rescue somebody and he and it's his second time he got the award he got it 30 years ago as well and of the third so these are people who've shown physical bravery uh, for others typically strangers and so far this year 36 medals have been awarded and 33 went to men so far and uh, you, I think you point out that it's, it just skews massively male. Yeah. Maybe the fact we don't know about that is interesting. And so there is this other side to it, which is maybe a sort of, and again, evolutionary would suggest around risk taking, et cetera. But I want to end with what I think is a fear that people have about all of this work generally and see how you respond to it, which is to say you produce compelling evidence that on average, there are these differences between men and women, m- many of which can be explained by testosterone. But there are overlapping distributions. And so it's impossible to know from those, from the overall uh, distributions, what that means for you. And you just said, right, so you're, you know, you're more emotional. I, I'm quite emotional too, but I'm half Welsh. So I, I say that's, yeah. but you're more physically risk-taking. So, but I'm also quite, you know, so you can think of many different ways in which as individuals. And what people are afraid of is that, that people lose that nuance. And so if you come out and say men are and more driven by sex. they do lose that nuance. Move, That's right. They're more aggressive. They're braver. They're more driven by sex. And they care a bit more about status. And people will say, aha, well, that's why I shouldn't hire you to be a tenured Harvard professor then. That's why, because you don't care about status as much. Or maybe you don't want all. That's why, you know, it's understand. We'll always have rapists. That's why, whatever. And so, or, so what you get is statistical discrimination, in other words. So we take the averages yes. and, we, and we apply them to individuals in ways that are damaging to those individuals' life prospects. That does seem to be yes. a real danger with this work. How do you handle that? Yes. You do a better job in science education and statistical literacy. Um, what you don't do is obscure the truth. So these are important uh issues to understand in our lives. And there is no, if we understand how these differences really work, the actual implications are not bad. You know, they do not justify discrimination. There are some questions that I wouldn't want to go, that I actually don't think we should be exploring, that I don't think we should be talking about uh, publicly because the implications would be very disturbing potentially. There are some things where you just don't even want to go there. Let's just, you know, focus on culture, say. Um, but I think when it comes to sex differences, there's nothing inherently um, 
damaging or scary or there's no monster hiding there. And and plus, what people think anyway, the stereotypes that they have are worse than the kind of reality that we can discover through science. People already are going to be forming their own opinions through what they observe. And I would much rather that they are literate in terms of the science and understand how it works. And then we focus on what the implications of that uh, science is. We don't distort the science. We teach people how to, what it means and how to think about it and how to apply it. That's where we have to focus. I just see no argument that distorting the truth or covering up the truth can ever be the right solution to making the world a better place in terms of, if, if we're just talking about kind of addressing things like physical violence. You want reality-based culture and reality-based policymaking. So last question, what, what's next for you after this adventure? Have you thought ahead to your next project? I have. The next project is to try to get eight hours a night <laughs> of sleep. Mm-hmm to uh, just uh, teach my class and run the concentration and pay some attention to my 12-year-old boy and husband and clean up the house. And um, things are just in disarray because we had, you know, I finished the book during COVID. That was just, you know, a lot of work. And then I went right back to work, uh, but without going to the office and had to redo all my lectures. And now I'm, you know, talking to you which is great but it, there's a lot to do and i'm i'm yeah want to get some sleep that's all i can really well, think I, about well, that's, well right that sounds like a an eminently sensible plan um and good good luck and good luck with that but also yeah we covered you, we I covered approximately 13 percent of the ground that i would love to cover you at some point so maybe one day i'll entice you back on perhaps when my own i would love that boys and men is coming out i want to talk about you know can you just say a couple sentences about that so i'm very I am worried that a byproduct of uh, women's economic independence, which I fully, totally support, you know, count me a full uh, feminist, has been to uh, somewhat cloud what it means to be a successful man. And that combined with some of the things we've talked around about masculinity uh, means that we have a growing number of young men and boys in particular who are somewhat adrift, hard to know, a little bit less planful, um, hard to know what it means to grow into a successful man. What we need, and I'm just going to quote from Joe Henrik here, everything, we do need, I think, a pro-social masculinity for the post-feminist age. Yes. And right now, I just right now, you don't get that option. You're either you either think there's a war on women, um, uh, and you've got to be two sides that you know reproductive rights, Donald Trump, etc. Or you think there's a um, the feminism has gone too far and we, we warned you this would happen and so on. But it's, it's, this has become a very, as you know better than most, a really, really difficult front in the culture wars. But it seems to me that we have to be able to recognize that massive social changes like the success of the women's movement come with consequences. Um, Can I just, just ask you a, a question? Sure. Um, sorry, about toxic masculinity, because I feel like people are using that term and trying to get uh, males to be more pro-social by talking about about toxic masculinity. I don't think it's working. I think it's backfiring. I think it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. And And I actually think it's a good litmus test now. I can't think of anybody whose work I take seriously who likes using that term. There may be people who, who thought it was okay 
in, in yeah. its original definitions, but the way it's being used now, I think that anybody that's using it is probably someone whose work you don't need to take seriously because the, those have realized that it's just, it's not a helpful way to do it. My fear is, and this relates to the work from Pew that I referred to earlier, is that it's done enough damage now that the prefix is no longer needed. If you get to a situation where most people just yeah. think masculinity yeah. is bad, you don't need the toxic anymore. And so I think this question about what is good about masculinity that's different, overlapping distributions and on average, what's good about it as well as what's challenging about it, we, we've got to be able to talk about that. And in particular, we've got to be able to have a new social, a new cultural script for men, which is compatible with gender equality and doesn't ask them to stop being men. Right now, it's, you know, you, you've got to find a way to have uh, men who are positive in their masculinity and yeah. entirely committed to, gen to gender equality and not to... That's and who a don't feel choice. ashamed about being men. No, they feel good about being men. I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm a man. Uh, it's great being a man. It's also difficult being a man in some ways, but I'm, I love being a man. And I, I want my boys to love being a man um, and not to in some way make that a bad thing. But at the same time, that shouldn't in any way mean we aren't 100% committed to equality in every way that matters to women. Right. right, or that you can't be a man who has a lot of feminine, typical characteristics, and that's a hundred percent fine. You can be a man and express yourself the way that you see fit. Right? I mean, it's consistent with that. Yes, we can have all this variation, but that doesn't mean you have to sandblast away some of these underlying differences. Or right. shame the right. situation like somehow or other, the idea of femininity kind of survived feminism, and in a way that I think was good. It was like, it's okay to want to be feminine, and sometimes for men to do that, right? But it got close at various points, but feminism didn't destroy femininity. Well, we can't destroy masculinity. The idea that the solution here is to destroy the idea of masculinity, partly because of the work people like you and have done, I just think that's a fool's errand, um, and is, is going to lead us into disaster, and it's going to lead a lot, of, a lot of men either angry or adrift or some kind of they are that's happening that is happening yeah so I, I but right now this is a space that's dominated either by you know people on the very very far on the right saying i told you this would happen women need to get me you let these women loose and of course you're gonna have problems and the far left who just say any any acceptance of difference or that in some way to worry about boys and men um, makes you a traitor to the cause of gender equality but that's that's where I'm going to try and do my work. Well, I think it's the exact opposite. I, I'm really glad to hear that you're working on that. When is that planned? Well, I'm going to try and... Uh, the end I'm, inside I'm going to try and write, write my book this year, finish it this oh, year. Okay. And so it'll be published okay. next year, hopefully. So this is by way of an announcement. Okay. All right, great. Good luck. Well, thank you for I'll look forward on. to that. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Great, and thanks again for your work. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.